millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges affecting Australia and its region. Policy Forum Pod is made possible thanks to Crawford School of Public Policy. And if you want to find out more about Crawford School, head to crawford.anu.edu.au. My name is Maya Bandari, and today I'm here with Bob Cotton. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much, Maya. Great to be here. And our guest today is the author of a new book looking at the potential for catastrophic conflict in Asia. It's called The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War. And our guest today is Brendan Taylor. And today we're going to hear about his new book and ask some big questions about the future of war and peace in our region. Now, Bob, I imagine the prospect of conflict in the Asian region was something that crossed your mind once or twice during your career as a diplomat. Yes, indeed, Mo. It certainly did. Uh, I started diplomacy in the mid-1960s. The Vietnam War was in full swing. And that was a constant in the first 10 years or so, very quickly succeeded by the conflict in Cambodia, which was a terrible one. And going on, looking at the conflicts in the region, some were within states, and I served in Sri Lanka for a time when they're very nasty and bitter civil war. And then subsequently looking at events going on in East Timor, and also particularly serving in Japan between China and Japan. That sort of sense of animosity and concern between the two of them continues today, as Brendan, I have no doubt, will tell us. Uh, Let me introduce Brendan. He's an Associate Professor of Strategic Studies at the ANU. He was the head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre from 2011 to 2016, and he has a particular and strong interest in East Asian flashpoints, the US-Australia Alliance and Asia-Pacific security architecture. And we're going to dig into some of that stuff with him right now. Well, just before we get on to that, just a quick reminder to send us some comments and questions about any thoughts you have about this podcast or any of our other podcasts or articles on Policy Forum. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net or you can contact us on social media. Our Twitter is apps Policy Forum or our Facebook is Asia Pacific Policy Society. But make sure you stay around after the pod when Bob and I will take a look at some of our listener comments. But right now we have Brendan Taylor with us. So welcome, Brendan. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Ma. Thanks, Bob. Lovely to be here. Uh, Thanks for coming in, Brendan. But before we get into discussing your new book, I was just interested to hear what inspired you to write it and what sort of processes you went through to research it. Well, there are lots of things inspired me to to write this book, but I think there were two big things going on in my mind at, at the time. One was I was very much looking backward and looking at um, I've been very fortunate to be here at the ANU for a number of years and, and work with a number of real real giants in this field, people like Coral Bell and, and Des Ball, Hugh White and Paul Dibb. And really one of the things I was uh, looking at, particularly as a number of those very, couple of those very sadly passed away, um, is what, what was it that, that made their career so special? And one of the things I came upon was that they asked really big questions and they asked 
really big questions about things that really mattered to Australia. And I think that that was the, the, the thing that I really wanted to try and do in this book, to ask the, the biggest question I could think of in, in my field and a question that I think is of, of tremendous importance to Australia. And it definitely is a really big question. And the book is titled The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War. And before we really kick off this conversation, just quickly, what is a flashpoint in this international relations context? Well, a flashpoint is a term that's, that's used very widely, but you're, you're right to ask the question, what is it? Because it's a, a term that's not often often defined. And in, in the book, I define the term very simply as a, uh, as a geographic area that has the potential to erupt very suddenly into, into violent conflict. And the, the conflict that I'm very interested in um, in this book is the, the conflict that, that brings in the major powers. Um, there's a phenomenon that uh, Geoffrey Blaney, the Australian historian, described as, as wide war, a conflict or a war that, that brings the, the really big players in, in the international system um, into a conflict. And so it's really those trigger points or those tensions, those geographic areas that have the, have the potential to spark a war of that, uh, that nature and scale that I'm interested in in this book. Brendan. You identify four flashpoints, the Korean Peninsula, the East China Sea, the South China Sea and Taiwan. Could you tell us a little bit about each of those and why you think they are flashpoints? The, the South China Sea is uh, is a flashpoint that's uh, the most complex of, of the flashpoints um, covered in, in this book. Um, it's a set of disputes uh, about um, land features in, in the South China Sea, um, a big body of water that's quite close to Australia. Very similar in nature to the a conflict in the East China Sea that's also about a set of disputed islands that the Japanese call the Senkaku Islands, the Chinese call it the Daoyu Islands. Um, these are two powers, as, um, as Bob has mentioned, that have been um, at loggerheads for literally for centuries. Uh, the Korean Peninsula is one that we're uh, all very familiar with at, at the moment following the Singapore summit between uh, US President Donald Trump and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. That's a flashpoint that um, concerns uh, the division of, of Korea that, that took place at the, the end of the Second World War. And, and certainly last but not least is the, the Taiwan flashpoint that, that concerns the disputed status of, of the island of, of Taiwan um, that, uh, that China claims is a, is a province of China, but the uh, population on Taiwan don't necessarily agree with that, uh, that assessment. Can you see a situation where or a scenario where a crisis in one area could overlap and sort of mix it up with another crisis in another area? some sort of relationship between the two that really complicates it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things that I, I really tried to do in this in this book, Bob. It's, um, I think one of the key findings of the, of the book is that each of the flashpoints are, are subtly different and that they need to be managed in, in very different ways. Uh, there's a no kind of one-size-fits-all solution. But at the same time, I think that one of the things we need to do more and that our policy makers need to do more is to, to actually zoom out a bit, to, to step back and, and look at what are the connections between these various flashpoints. And one of the things I do in the book is that I argue that Asia is at quite a dangerous moment at present because of the there's a phenomenon happening in this part of the world where um, a crisis spiral is, is unfolding or something that I in the book that I call a crisis spiral where we see a, a succession of um, international crises occurring in this part of the world in Korea, uh, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea and potentially I think um, we're about to see a, a big one emerging in Taiwan as well and that these crises over time start to have a cumulative effect and that this cumulative effect if we, we look at what's happened throughout history in the period before the First World War or the Second World War um, that the great Australian scholar Coral Bell talked about uh, a crisis slide um, appearing in those two periods and I think the same thing is happening in Asia today. Now you mentioned that we were talking about history and look and zooming out from Asia but there's recently been some comparisons about uh, comparisons between the current situation in Asia and as you said 
uh, the world in Europe prior to World War One. Do you think that these are fair comparisons? Like, is it right to be comparing Asia with Europe? Well, there's that that famous saying that you know history never repeats, but it but it does rhyme, and I think that's one of one of the things that we you know it's very difficult to say how a, how a conflict is going to unfold or, or whether a conflict will. Uh, will unfold in this this part of the world, and there are there are very very big differences to uh, to Asia today and and Europe on the eve of the, the First World War. But I think there's also some some very startling comparisons um, as well, some very striking comparisons, um, a very strong sense of, of nationalism, for instance, that's uh, present in both of those those theatres. The uh, the tightening of alliance relationships that we saw on the eve of, of World War One, we're seeing some evidence of that happening in um, in Asia today. And and also, I think one of the things I I try to do in this book is is not only just look at those kind of big structural factors, but I also look at the um, the more immediate causes of, of war. And I was inspired by a history of World War One. In fact, that was written by the Australian historian Christopher Clarke called "The Sleepwalkers: um, How Asia Went to War and Sorry, How Europe Went to War um, in 1914." And, and that was really one of the things that um, inspired my my approach to this book. I'm certainly interested in those big structural factors, shifts in the the balance of power that people like Hugh White and Graham Allison uh, have written about so well. But I'm I think that we also need to pay more attention if we're really trying to anticipate where conflict is, is going to come from to those those more immediate causes of, of conflict that um, that could spark a great power war in Asia. And that's why I looked at the, the flashpoints themselves rather than those big structural factors. Brendan, you, if one of these flashpoints you've identified does erupt, how do you think the leaders involved of those particular countries are likely to be able to react? Put, if you could maybe put yourself in the mind of some of the Asian leaders uh, Shinzo Abe in Japan, Donald Trump in America, uh, maybe Putin in Russia, maybe the Xi Jinping in China. How do they see it? How are they going to play this? One of the things, Bob, that I'm, I'm really worried about is that there's a, a sense of complacency has, has crept in amongst leaders around around the world. And this is one of the features of a, of a crisis slide. And I think that there's a, a sense amongst leaders that Conflict is, is inconceivable, or at least conflict on a on a major scale that I'm talking about is is inconceivable. And if we look back through through history, when there have been other crisis slides, that's exactly what's happened. So my fear is that um, the situation at, at present is is really ripe for um, miscalculation, where say Xi Jinping will uh, will not believe that that the US is going to come to Taiwan's aid, and at the same time. Donald Trump might believe that Xi Jinping is, is bluffing and that he's not going to really launch an, an, an attack against the island of, of Taiwan. And I think those are, are probably pretty, at the best of times, pretty fair assessments. But I think as we get into you know a heated situation and a, and a crisis situation, there's the potential for those misperceptions and miscalculations to to escalate and, and for, for conflict to, to erupt and to, and to erupt a lot more quickly than we might anticipate. Just how serious can these misperceptions be? Like it's just something so small. Like will that really spark? potentially World War Three. I think it's, it's a great question, Myra, and I think it, it depends on, on the, the area that we're talking about. And for instance, um, one of the reasons why I think that looking at um, each of the flashpoints discreetly and, and differently is, is important is because the dynamics of, of each are, are different. And in the South China Sea, for instance, if we saw uh, a clash between uh, vessels at, at sea, there's a, there's a good chance that that wouldn't escalate into a, into a conflict because we're talking about a very vast maritime expanse. Um, there's a lot more time for, for diplomats to do their work and to try and de-escalate that situation, to try and find off-ramps uh, to that situation. It's very different from a, a 
situation, say, on the Korean Peninsula, um, where the geography is um, is a lot tighter and the, the, the militaries are a lot closer in, in proximity and um, players have to make decisions much more quickly because if they fear that the other side is going to make a, a strike against them, they then face a decision, well, do we, do we strike back or, or do we wait? And so I think that certainly the geography of the different flashpoints really um, matters greatly and that, that really, I think, to a great extent, determines the answer to to the question that, that you're asking. In, in some cases, um, a relatively small in, instance or incident could could spiral and escalate quickly. In other situations, uh, the time will be more on our side and, and more on our diplomat's side. Do you have any recommendations, let's say, for the major powers, China and the USA? I think we think of them as the sort of upfront players. Um, any thoughts on how they can navigate through this fairly dangerous terrain? I think um, what I would like to see on, on the part of um, certainly those, those major players on the part of the US and China, but also I think all of all of Asia's leaders is, is a greater sense of urgency. I think we've seen um, efforts and, and I think quite genuine efforts in, in the case of the South China Sea, for instance, or the East China Sea to develop um, crisis management mechanisms. Some of your listeners would have seen the developments of last week uh, where the um, leaders of ASEAN and China um, came up with a, a document that they're going to negotiate about for um, developing a code of conduct for the for the South China Sea to try and um, have a, a set of rules for if a, if a clash does occur or for avoiding a clash, um, you know, for managing those um, those particular instances. Those negotiations have been going on for for decades, and we, we've seen a similar thing in the, the East China Sea, where there was a a breakthrough agreement happened towards the end of last year, um, and in May of uh, this year, the leaders of, of China and, and Japan agreed to implement this uh, agreement for a, a new communication mechanism between. China and Japan, but that that negotiation took a, a decade um, to to play out, and even then, the the mechanism doesn't really uh, get at the issue of whether it's going to apply um, around the disputed Senkaku Daiyu Island. So I think that we need to move a lot more quickly. Time is not on our side. The the risks of a, of an accidental clash that could escalate are, are growing as the waterways and the the airways uh, around these flashpoints become more crowded. And I think our, our leaders, if I could have one recommendation or one takeaway, need to display a lot more urgency than they're currently uh, displaying. Uh, how about Australia? Do you think we're doing enough? Do you think we're cognizant of what's going on? Or do we have a sense of urgency? Well, I think one of the big challenges for Australia is um, is our size. I mean, we've we've certainly played um, a positive role um, before around uh, different flashpoints and uh, and other points of tension in, in the region. Bob, you mentioned the Cambodia case. Um, I think that that was a really important role that, that Australia played in, in resolving that that conflict. And I think we can do more like that again. But one of the big challenges for Australia is going to be as the countries around us are, are getting much bigger and stronger and, and more influential, that's going to happen at a time when when our economy is shrinking, when our strategic weight, given the fact that um, you know, economic power is the, is the basis or the very foundation of, of military power is also um, shrinking, it's going to be harder for us to uh, to make our voice heard in, in the region. I think our, our Prime Minister is, is certainly making an effort to do this at, at present. He gave a very important speech uh, at a defence meeting up in Singapore in the middle of last year, um, a meeting called the Shangri-La Dialogue, where um, he talked about the, the possibility of um, uh, things uh, going along a, a much darker path in um, in Asia, and I think it's important that we and we do that, but that we do it um, as vocally as we can, while recognising that there are going to be limits on our influence um, going forward in the decades ahead. Could I just ask on Cambodia again? You reminded me, of course, that was a role that the UN played, a very significant one, bringing peace finally to that country. And you're right, Australia played a very significant role. Do you have much faith in um, multilateral organisations, regional bodies that we could? 
be doing more in as Australia? Well, certainly I think those those multilateral bodies, um, if they're working well, are, are very important to to Australia because as a, a middle-sized power and as a country whose weight is arguably decreasing and trying to have venues where our voice can be heard, um, those multilateral groupings are very important. One of the things that worries me, though, about the multilateral groupings at the moment is increasingly as Asia's order is becoming more contested, uh, as the major powers are, are starting to really rub up against um, one another, we're seeing a situation where the institutions in the region and, and beyond are starting to uh, to reflect that competition between um, the major powers. And I think that as that happens, it's going to become harder and harder for those multilateral organisations to, to make meaningful progress. And I think we've, we've seen this, a very good example of this in the case of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a, a grouping of 10 Southeast Asian countries that's really struggled over the last few years as a result of, uh, of Chinese pressure, uh, many would argue, um, to try and, and have a coherent position on, on the South China Sea. And that's not something that's good for Australia, but I think it's a, a reality that, that we increasingly are going to face as the region becomes more contested and as those institutions really reflect that contestation. Now, we reached out on social media to all our listeners to ask some questions for you. And we have a question from Nick Beasley. And as you might be aware, Nick is Professor of International Relations at La Trobe University. And he wants to know your firm odds for each flashpoint. And he asks, who's the lucky long shot? That's a great, great question from, from Nick. And it's one, wonderful to, to get a question from Nick. Nick's actually going to be launching uh, the book in, in Melbourne um, a bit later this uh, this month. But certainly in terms of the... What you know? What are the most dangerous of, of the flashpoints? Um, for me, it might it might seem a little bit counterintuitive because many people think in Australia, at least, about the South China Sea as being the, the most dangerous flashpoint um, in this region. For me, that's actually the the least dangerous flashpoint. It's a a flashpoint where I think the the, the truly vital interests of the of the major powers, those interests that they would really go to war over, I think are not present in the South China Sea, with the possible exception of, of China itself. But I, I don't see the US really going to, to war um, with China in, in the South China Sea. We then move up the list. Um, I think the, the East China Sea is the one where uh, is the, ne- the next least likely um, to, to spark major power war. Um, I think that there are some real risks there, partly because we see China and Japan uh, having a very troubled history, very strong anti-Chinese uh, sentiment in Japan and, and vice versa. But I think the, the fact that those are two very strong powers militarily and the fact that the US would almost certainly join uh, Japan in a conflict against China is probably going to be sufficient to deter China from trying to uh, wage war against um, Japan over the, the disputed Senkaku Daiyu Islands. The Korean Peninsula is then number two on my list, and I think we saw last year a situation where uh, that um, part of the world, that flashpoint, drifted dangerously close to war. I think, thankfully, as a result of the uh, the inter-Korean summit um, earlier this year and the, the very historic uh, Singapore summit um, back in, in June that I referred to earlier has taken a lot of the heat out of that particular um, flashpoint. But we're not out of the woods yet. I think that um, we've got two very... Uh, strong, arguably erratic and, and unpredictable actors in the form of Donald Trump and and, and Kim Jong-un, um, both of whom like to, to exert control and to, to get their way. So the personalities, I think, are going to be very in, important in that, that flashpoint. But the one that really worries me most of all is, is the Taiwan flashpoint, the one that I think we're talking least about at, at the moment. I think that's one where there's a very dangerous triangular dynamic going on at the moment where um, China, I think, has has genuine vital interests, core interests at stake in that flashpoint. It, it would, if it was pushed into a corner, I think, go to war over that flashpoint. 
We've got a population on on Taiwan, on the island of Taiwan, uh, 23 million uh, people who increasingly feel less and less of an affinity with the the mainland. And we also have the United States, who for a number of decades has really been the the guarantor of Taiwan's security, or at least the the possibility that the US might intervene has been something that's deterred China from using military force against Taiwan. I think if we look over the next decade, the ability of the United States to come to Taiwan's defense as the military balance of power between the US and China shifts uh, is going to become uh, less and less likely. Uh, So that, for me, is the uh, the really dangerous flashpoint, partly because uh, there's just also a lack of confidence building measures or crisis management measures mechanisms uh, that are in existence between uh, China and Taiwan at the moment. So that's the one that, that keeps me awake at kind of 2am in the morning. Some, and I think you've mentioned this yourself in the book, uh, speculate about a grand bargain between mm. China and the United States and Trump's proclivities for doing deals of one sort and another. Maybe there's a bargain to be had on the Korean Peninsula and on Taiwan. Not quite sure. What do you think? Yes. I mean, this is something that um, certainly some really big names in, in the field have talked about the prospect for there being a, a, a grand bargain. Um, and I think that one of the, the great difficulties of uh, achieving a grand bargain in Asia is, is the very diversity of, of the region. And I think that, you know, I talked about the, the flashpoints being in, interconnected, but they're also so different in, in their own right as well. And if you take the, the case of Korea, for instance, say if, um, if President Xi Jinping were to say to Donald Trump, um, how about um, we, we trade Korea for, for Taiwan? I'll, I'll squeeze North Korea in, in return for, for you stepping back and, and leaving Taiwan to me. And I think the problem there is that the, um, the smaller powers in that equation, uh, the, the North Koreans and, and the Taiwanese, are, are probably not going to going to go down without a fight. Certainly in the case of the, the North Koreans, they could turn to, to other patrons, the, the Russians, for instance, or they could look to work through other um, illicit uh, channels. Certainly those forms of support wouldn't be as strong as the, the Chinese support that, they've, uh, that they currently enjoy, um, but it, it still would be uh, sufficient to keep the North Koreans um, afloat. I think at the same time that the Taiwanese might look to go down the nuclear path as they look to do in the, the 60s and 70s and even as, as recently as the, the 1980s. And that's something that neither the US or the, the Chinese would, would want to see. But these smaller powers do have options, even if the, the big boys in the room decide to, to kind of strike a, um, a deal and, and use them as bargaining chips in that. If I may, just one more on that. And how, would, how do you think Japan would feel if they did strike? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like such a bargain in Japan going nuclear. Well, I think it's one of Japan's worst nightmares at, at the moment. Whenever the the US and, and China seem to be getting on on well, the the Japanese get get more and more nervous about that. And uh, I think that in in some respects, the out of all of the countries in the region at the moment, um, the Japanese are probably breathing a, a sigh of relief that um, that tensions are um, apparently more and more in, in existence between the the US and, and China because it at least means that um, there's little prospect of of the US and, and China striking a deal that. that Marginalises Japan, but but Bob, I think I think you're right. The prospect of, of a Japan going nuclear, particular 
particularly with the the very erratic and un- unpredictable policies of, of the Trump administration, is something, despite the domestic opposition that that might face in Japan, is something that can't be written off either. Can I tempt you to speculate a little bit more about Trump? Do you think he's done some good uh, by way he's approached the region, some of his decisions? Has he shaken us up? Has he shaken up the Korean peninsula that might lead to something better? Well, I certainly think that, that Trump has been able to, to do what, what other US presidents, um, including his immediate predecessor, Barack Obama, has, has wanted to do but wasn't very successful in doing, and that was getting US allies um, and partners to step up and spend more on their, their defence. And I think he's been very effective at, at doing that. And I think to give Trump credit, um, I think the, the fact that he met with, with Kim Jong-un, his, his rather unconventional um, approach was something that that was a, a real positive and something that that was needed in, in the region and his the fact that he that he is un, unpredictable I think um, could be a, a stabilizing force um, to some extent um, people talked about um, Richard Nixon for instance as um, as being a, a bit of a madman or, or trying to cultivate the impression of being a madman and that was a, a, a factor that that deterred the the Soviets but I think those um, that sort of erratic behavior also needs to be to be balanced off against the um, the possibility that uh, as as, there, as it continues more and more over, over time, that that other countries begin to to call Trump's bluff, and then maybe um, he he gets um, irate over that, and that could could uh, spell the makings of, of a major crisis too. Okay, it's a pretty sombre future we've got ahead of us. Can I sort of just tempt you with a bit of a build on to Nick Bisley's question, which goes something like: if you were if you awoke from a coma in twenty thirty, and someone had told you there'd been a disastrous war in Asia while you'd been asleep. What do you what do you think your first guess would have been at what caused it? I think it it um, it depends would depend on on when when the war had had occurred. I mean one of, one of the things I, I think that we we've seen in, in the region in, in recent years is is a tendency to, to zoom in on on particular flashpoints. And so at the moment, uh, my money would be on on Taiwan. Last year it would have been on on Korea. Um, three or four years before that, it would have probably been on, on the East China Sea. So it depends on on the dynamics of, of what's happening at a particular point in time. But it's one of the reasons why I think it's also important for us to, to kind of zoom out and look at the the interrelationships between those those flashpoints. Um, I think understanding the, the dynamics of um, of which are, are most dangerous at a particular point in time are very important because those are the ones that we then really need to concentrate on um, on kind of trying to trying to insulate those from from the other other flashpoints and trying to trying to build. In, in a much more urgent way, um, crisis management mechanisms around those those flashpoints. But much would would depend. Uh, the first question I'd, I'd ask is when when did the war happen? And it would also mean that I think we also shouldn't downplay the the scale of, of of such a conflict. I mean, I may awake from a coma, I may not even awake from that coma because the the scale of the conflict could be so great. We've been talking a lot about irrational leaders, about the potential for nuclear escalation, the fact that any of these flashpoints could trigger a major war. And, you know, even looking around the region and looking further, looking in the world, there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic. While leaders are unpredictable, American leadership in the region is changing and there are tensions and conflicts in every region around the world. And after having done all of this research for your book, how pessimistic about the future of Asia are you? Are you more of a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of guy? Oh, I think I'm, I'm definitely a, a glass half full 
kind of guy. And I was very fortunate, as I mentioned at the outset, to work with um, Coral Bell, one of Australia's great strategic thinkers. And one of the things that she often tried to instill in, in me as, uh, you know, as one of my mentors and, and teachers was the, the importance of, of being optimistic. And I think that despite the, the title of, of this book and despite the, the very um, sense of, strong sense of pessimism that, uh, that it conveys, I think this book is actually more a book about um, pathways to peace in Asia and about trying to find pathways to peace in each of those flashpoints or managing them to, to the extent that um, they don't erupt into major war. And, and then the, the major role of, of the book, I think, is to try and um, find a, a, a pathway to, to peace in, in Asia ov- overall, so to find a way of arresting that, that crisis slide so that it doesn't erupt into to violent conflict. So it's a, it's a very serious subject matter. It's a very pessimistic um, area to, to work in. But I think the, in, the intent of the book, as, as I think the, the role of, of any strategic study scholar uh, should be, is, is to try and um, avoid conflict or try and find, find ways of anticipating conflict in advance um, so that it hopefully doesn't happen. Can I ask you, I think you've written a bit about in, in the book as well, uh, kind of reworking the balance of power in Asia. And I think the traditional concept is several powers which kind of get a mutual equilibrium of the power structure. But having said that, the, the power relativities are changing. Do you think that's the kind of model that we need to think about? And are we, Australia, doing enough to kind of work on it? Yeah, it's a great question, Bob. And I think, you know, for me, the, the, the main priority in, in the book is to try and find ways of arresting Asia's crisis slide. But you're absolutely right, provided that we can find ways of doing that. Uh, the other big argument that I have in the book is, is once we can arrest that crisis slide, is how do we build a stable order so that we don't find ourselves in this situation again? And I think one of the things that worries me in, in Australia at the moment is that our debate around this question has become highly polarised. And you're right that there are different kinds of um, of power balances that that one could imagine. But I think in, in our debate here in Australia, there's there are really two competing views at the moment. There's there's one view that suggests that the the old US order can can be preserved, provided that Australia and uh, and India and Japan and other like-minded countries stand by the US and really stare down the, the Chinese challenge. On the other side are, are those who suggest that the power relativities are shifting and what we're moving towards is, is a Chinese-led order and that Australia really needs to adjust itself to that. What I try to do in, in the four flashpoints is to, is to suggest a, a third way between those, those two camps. I try to suggest that on the one hand, yes, we have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that the power relativities are shifting and for that reason, we should be trying to encourage the US to step back uh, from Taiwan and, and the South China Sea because in the medium to longer term, I think that the geography of those flashpoints really disfavours China too strongly. Increasingly, um, the US and its allies are going to be um, able to do less and less with respect to those two flashpoints. On the other hand, on the Korean Peninsula and on the East, in the East China Sea, those are areas where the US enjoys situations of strength, to borrow a term that US Secretary of State Dean Acheson used back in the 1950s. It's very hard to imagine a situation where Chinese, the Chinese would be able to pose a serious military challenge to the US in, in either of those um, theatres looking over the, the medium to, um, to long-term future. So I, I suggest that what Canberra should be doing is, is using the limited influence that, that we have um, to try and convince the US to, um, to really double down on, on those situations of strength while at the same time easing off um, on uh, Taiwan and in the East China Sea and not making those um, zones where it tries to, to wage its strategic competition with China. 
Unfortunately, Donald Trump seems to disagree because he's doing exactly the opposite. Now, these are all really big discussions that we're having and really big questions with such a huge and catastrophic potential. And just before we wrap up, I have a final question from one of our listeners and longtime writer for Policy Forum, Olga Krasniak. Now, she posted this on Twitter, so I'm just going to read it out as she read, as she wrote it. Now, she says, it's hard to ask any questions before reading a book because, I guess, these questions have already been answered in the book. Now, anyway, I just want to ask, what would Brendan recommend to keep in mind while reading his text? I mean, she just wanted to let you know that she has pre-ordered your book, which is great news. <laughs> well, it's great to, to hear from Olga, and I'm a big fan of Olga's, um, Olga's work, so it's uh, wonderful to get a, a receive a question from her. I think the, the thing that I would um, you know, encourage all readers to, to keep in mind is, I mean, hopefully they'll, they'll enjoy the book. I mean, it is it is very somber subject matter, but I've tried to, to write it in, in a way that's, um, that's going to be, be interesting. Um, for the for the reader, but I think the the main thing I would encourage readers to to keep in mind is is to have it, have an open mind and and to really on around that point of of complacency to kind of challenge your assumptions that that you have about um, the possibility that that economic interdependence or the likelihood that economic interdependence those very tight trade linkages between countries will be enough to to prevent war happening or that the fact that we have nuclear weapons in our region will be enough to ensure that that countries will will not bear the, the costs and risks of of going to war. I'd really en- encourage readers to to try and, and put aside those assumptions. They're, they're very important arguments and very enduring arguments. But if you look back o- over um, history in, in the last um, you know, a couple, few decades and even over the, the centuries, um, we have come come pretty close to those arguments being disproven. The classic example is the Cuban Missile Crisis of the, the 1960s where we had nuclear weapons in, in that particular um, crisis and one of the key players in that crisis, uh, Robert McNamara, said only a few years ago in a, in a movie that, that he made called The Fog of War that it was really only luck that prevented the superpowers going to uh, to conflict um, back in the early 1960s. Similarly, in the period before the First World War, we had very tight economic um, interconnections between the countries um, of Europe in, in that period. Um, people like the political scientist Norman Angel suggested that it would be next to impossible or inconceivable that the, the countries of Europe would, would go to war in a book that he wrote back in 1910 and only a few years later they went to war. So I'd really encourage readers to to keep those big arguments in mind about economic interdependence and nuclear weapons, but to also keep an open mind and um, that, that they, those arguments themselves mightn't be as, as robust and as strong as we think. Well, there you go. If you're going to read Brendan's book, Keep an Open Mind. And congratulations, I guess, is in order. Your book was released this week. So if you wanted to check it out, we'll leave a link for it in our show notes. And thank you very much, Brendan, for coming. And thank you, Bob, for joining me in this podcast. Thanks, mine. Thanks, Bob. Lovely to be here. So that was Brendan Taylor, and his book is called The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War. And it's out this week. Now, Brendan also did a book launch this week where he talks a little bit more about the book. And if you wanted to listen to that, we'll leave a link in the show notes for you. Now, Bob, that was a really interesting discussion that we had with Brendan just then. Fascinating, Mark. Completely fascinating. A couple of thoughts on it. One, really, um, we're in a dangerous and uh, unpredictable world, even more so in a way than when I was working as a diplomat for almost 40 years. As they say, the tectonic plates of power are shifting and not necessarily in our favour. So there's some serious thinking to be done, and Brendan certainly launched it with this discussion and the book. A couple of other points. 
I'm fascinated by the emphasis he is now giving to Taiwan and the issue that that might pose for us in the future. Do you agree with him? Do you think Taiwan is... Well, I think I have to because I think we've made the assumption over the years that Taiwan is okay, it's an issue resolved, the ultimate future is to go with China and that'll be done peacefully and, and in a nice sort of overtime way that will be absorbed into the mainland. Maybe not so. So that is something that, I, that really struck me. So that's sort of, for me something uh, requires new evidence, new thinking. Second point for me is Japan and Japan having to live in this changed world with worries about Korea, worry about tying its security future entirely to the United States. If some of that starts to shake loose, what does Japan do? And another thought is what are we doing in Australia about all of that? Are we well equipped? Are we out there working with other nations? I'm thinking now primarily Indonesia, India, directly with China itself and so on. So those are some immediate thoughts that I feel about our discussion. Maya? Yeah, just going on about what you were saying about Japan, I think that out of those four flashpoints that we're talking about, I think that the East China Sea is something that we don't hear much about. So I think that that was quite interesting. Um, do you think that the East China Sea is something that we should pay more attention to? I think we should because certainly that's where Japan and Chinese sort of sense of history, sense of um, bad history with each other over a long, long time come, in, come into immediate and direct conflict. And certainly it is territorial claims in an area of high strategic importance to them both. Interesting that Brendan really put that higher than, say, the South China Sea, where, if you like, their interests are a bit less directly engaged. But certainly I think Japan is concerned that if, South, if China gets its way, so to speak, in the South China Sea, it will try and do the same in the East China Sea. And Japan would regard that as really quite a fundamental, a fundamental concern. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that one of the key things that I took from that conversation was how history is quite pervasive and how all of these countries have such conflicts and such tensions that have lasted for years and years. And as we've seen with, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict, how time isn't really helping the matter. So do you think that if we keep kicking the can down the road and keep avoiding conflict, things are just going to get worse? It's a high risk, I'm afraid. Um, having served in Japan as a diplomat and then more recently visiting China, we went to Chongqing out in Western China. They show you there a museum of what the Japanese did to the Chinese during the war, Second World War, which for the Chinese really started about 1932 with the invasion of Manchuria. It's a long and bitter history. Chinese haven't forgotten it and the Japanese haven't ever really made amends for it. They've tried, some leaders have tried, but really in terms of the way two nations think about each other, no. So what you're saying, the risk is high. Mm, and I think the sense of pessimism and the sense of bit doom and gloom and the fact that, you know, as I like to call it, World War Three might might happen, might not, it's all a bit all a bit scary, all a bit frightening and especially for me, as someone who will, you know, be living in this space and hopefully be working in this area, to think about how this region is really going to impact us and impact Australians working in this sort of field. Well, I simply added, as Brenda did, stay optimistic. We're a good country. We have very significant international relationships. We bring a lot of um, weight to the table when we do engage, and it's our future to go and protect. Uh, my only urge would be that we need to get much more active in some of the things we are doing there. We're a bit sleepwalking. And of course, I should have mentioned how tied down are we by the ANZUS Alliance in some of the things we might want to do. 
So that's the kind of question I don't think we've ever really confronted. Yeah, these definitely these are definitely questions that we need to think about and we need to keep in our mind and we need to think about how this region is constantly evolving and our place in it. Okay, so now we'll just discuss some of our listener comments from our articles at Policy Forum. We've had a lot of comments about Australia's debate on medical cannabis, and we've published two pieces in the last two weeks on Policy Forum with quite different perspectives. One is by Jennifer Martin and the other by Reese Cohen. We recommend reading them both and we'll leave links to them for you in the show notes. Now, Brian commented, marijuana is a harmless herb. Everyone should have the right to grow and use it in the privacy of their own homes if they wish to do so. Just legalise it. And another comment says, the worst policy of all is prohibition. It has ruined many thousands of Australians' lives, let alone globally. Legalise it now in all its forms. The war on drugs is BS and it needs to end. Now, Bob, there certainly seems to be some strong opinions out there in favour of legalisation. What are your thoughts on that? Look, thanks very much. Um, I do have some thoughts. One particularly close to my own family is that one of my daughters has a very significant migraine system and that's a lifelong condition as one learns to understand. And the the ability to now use um, medicinal marijuana to help deal with pain and other forms of, of migraine suffering are very real and very much to be desired. That is, provided you can process the marijuana so you take out the medicinal benefits without necessarily getting the hits that take you on high and all the rest of that stuff. So I'm, I'm a pretty strong supporter of that and I think that work on that needs to take place fairly soon. And I think we're caught up in a bind between what is state and federal legislation in all of this place. But I think there's a need for it and I think there's a need to rethink the prohibitions. Now, these articles both mention the difference between medical cannabis and recreational. Um, what are your thoughts on legalising recreational marijuana? Not so strong on that one because I still think there are risks there. I think there's enough evidence to show that if you take it as it in an undiluted form, not, med- not medicinal, there can be permanent or semi-permanent damage to the brain and other parts of the body. I don't think that's worth having. We also had a comment by John on a piece by Earl Conte Morgan titled China's Non-Interference Dilemma. Africa shows why Beijing can't resist mixing business with politics. Now, John's comments were, This article is not serious. China has always interfered in the internal affairs of other countries. Examples make the news almost every day. What do you think, Bob? Is China's non-interference policy a myth? Or do you think Beijing can back up the claim that it's less interventionist than the West? Thanks, Maya. I think international relations players is a field where you see far too many devils and not so many angels. I think very few nations can pretend not to have interfered one way or another in the affairs of other nations. China certainly. And when you think of what China regards as former Chinese territories belonging to the old Chinese empire, Tibet, Taiwan, and so on, China has some very strong historical claims, it believes, for those territories. China also doesn't seem to be adverse to interfering more recently in kind of subtle soft power ways. Chinese students in Australia, Confucius institutes in the country in the way they conduct their business, getting close to politicians of one sort and another. Now, we would probably regard that as quite legitimate ways of influence opinion in another country, and certainly um, China is fully engaged in all of that. China has strong national interest and uses all the means at its command to promote them. Is China worse than the West? Probably not. If you look back at some of the interventions in other countries in recent years, the United States is a good example. 
um, then I think, you know, as I said, quite, quite a few devils on this field and not that many angels. Now, these are some amazing comments that we've had on our articles. And if you had any thoughts, comments or questions for us, be sure to hit us up on social media or our email. We're keen to hear your thoughts. So you can reach us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. And I just wanted to quickly thank Nick and Olga for their questions from this podcast. They're really great questions and keep them coming. Policy Forum Pod will be back next week on Tuesday with another Policy Forum Pod Extra. The regular podcast will also be out on Friday. And in light of National Science Week, we'll be talking about the Anthropocene, which is a new geological age where humans have caused a mess of the planet. Now, if you're like me and you don't really know what the Anthropocene is, be sure to check out that podcast. And that's all from me, Maya. I'll see you next week. And thank you, Bob, for coming in. Great pleasure. Thanks, Maya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 